You're very welcome to Blurini Bellidis Folklore Fragments, episode 28, the podcast coming to you from the National Folklore Collection, University College Dublin. Um, my guest today is a writer and documentary maker who's written books on his travels in Africa, India and South America. He writes for the Irish Times, he reports on travel for various radio programmes and has presented dozens of documentaries on world culture for TTKAR, RTE and the Travel Channel. And for this episode of Blurini, I'm particularly delighted to welcome Manchal McGann to explore his most recent book, 32 Words for Field, Last Words of the Irish Landscape. The book is a meditation on the richness of a language tied to the natural landscape, which offered our ancestors a more magical way of seeing the world, and it considers the sublime beauty and profound oddness of the ancient tongue that has been spoken on this island for over 2,000 years. 32 Words for Field has been nominated for numerous awards here and is, as of December 2020, already in its fourth printing. So stay with us as we explore attitudes to the other world, to place, to fields, thresholds, circles, curses, cures, and more. So, Manchan, so in this podcast, I generally I suppose I like to explore specific topics that arise as expressions of folk tradition. But today it, we're kind of looking at something different in examining your book. And this is to explore how the words we use reflect the way in which we interpret the world around us. So there was a nice interview that you gave to Claire Byrne on Radio One a while ago regarding the book and how in it you see that the kind of the two languages of English and Irish are kind of pose apart. Um, and how they allow you to see the world differently. So I just wanted to, to, to start with a kind of an opening that you give from the book regarding landscape in particular. And you write, Our landscape now looks like an increasingly anonymous expanse of indistinguishable fields, yet seen through the Irish language, each field has its own word, depending on its characteristics and function. You also mentioned that the knowledge is, is contained within the land and the best way to access it is through the language. So what is this this knowledge exactly? Ah, what is this knowledge? It's so hard to say. It's it's just when people have been living in the one place for a length of time. And, you know, we've been here not only for decades, not only for centuries, but for millennia. Um, you people, Humans tend to build up knowledge. And this is just, it's something that's hardwired. It's why we sort of became, um, you know, why we sort of took over of all the evolutionary strands, because we were able to gather information, learn new facts, and then communicate it to other people through words. So, and we do that wherever we go. You know, now that we're even, we're setting up in the space station, we are observing new things and communicating that to other people. So every little area looks around, notices things, and then um, sort of encodes them in this language and um, and passes them on. And so, like, this year, um, I know I know I had the book out coming out, but this year I was looking at coastal words. I just happened to have this project, Sea Tamagotchi, going along Donegal, Mayo, Galway, gathering sea words. And in each, not only in each county, but in each peninsula, in each headland, in each island, there are these unique words for the fishing conditions, the wind conditions, the types of seaweed, the places the seaweeds arrived in. And it's just a human beings observing things that are useful to them or things that inspire them or or, 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 or move them are just are part of their daily lives, encoding them in their means of communication. And, um, you know, in, in Ireland, it was Irish and then passing it on. And again, that's something absolutely universal. But what's unique in Ireland is that like what we've been here, people, settlers have been on this island for 10 or 12,000 years. Now, those first settlers weren't us, clearly, you know, the latest DNA evidence is showing that I suppose we are, 
we're not only we're not really Neolithic, we're the early Bronze Age settlers, but that's still a long time. That means we've been here 1,000 years, 2,000 years, 2,800 years, um, more, you know, 3,000. Now, the, the Irish language, you know, the, sort of the Gaelic scholars will say it probably goes back to 500 BC. But again, we don't know. The words that the people who weren't us, the people who built Newgrange and, and, and Loch Crew and all, the words that they were speaking could potentially, some of the words could have survived within the Irish language. So when we're dealing with the Irish language, we're dealing with this language that actually could stretch back within some of the words, potentially back 10,000 years. That's that's what I'm trying to get at, I think. It, it's it's fascinating when you when you think about it. And I've often thought about, you know, in the, just in the context of what you're describing there, like you often have the, the value that's attributed to items, say rare items found in archaeological digs, rare artifacts or, or whatever. But we forget that a great many of the words that we use in daily speech stretch back over over countless generations or millennia and, and within them are, are buried all sorts of concepts and ideas that kind of live in and are rooted within us. And some of just some of the descriptions just to read through again are fantastic for literally as you open the book Words for Field. Um, you know, Biroch is a marchy, marshy field, Bronner is a fallow field. Uh, Cluan is a meadow field between two woods. Taunach an arable field in an arid area. Uh, Plos yeah. a level field for spreading flax or hay. Plos og a sheltered field in which a mare would fall. And it goes on and on, but the specificity and difference, and as you mentioned, the, I suppose the, 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 the connectedness to the land that's inherent in, in the language that we use. I remember chatting to Eddie Lenehan before and he was describing how in days gone by, people's roots they didn't spread wide but they are very deep in into the local area and that's something that comes across in the in the the the, the descriptions that you collect and and it's funny because you know in the modern world it's come the exact opposite we are now spread so wide around the world um with internet and with just our with our diaspora with our sons and daughters going off to australia and canada and yet yeah we have lost that depth and you could say there's no need for it anymore because we don't we didn't rely on the land but actually it seems that a lot of us are feeling this um this 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 gap this this urge to to connect with something deeper um and you can see that with the sort of the renewed interest in the folklore in the folklore department and with the in the school's collection we want to know who we come from and if that's not readily available to us or if from some sort of colonial mindset we feel ashamed by it then we go and take someone else's culture and you know you can see all these people going on their yoga mat and taking on these sanskrit words for yoga moves all they're trying to find is meaning in life meaning in the world yeah well just just i couldn't agree that that there is that noted um there's an, there's an absence or a gap, I think, that, that is is filled in many ways by tradition or there's, there's a great capacity for tradition to kind of to provide the, the why of, of, of being in a modern age, I suppose. The, the, the second chapter in, in, in the book um, is called First Utterance and it's a lovely kind of account, I suppose, of the power of speech. And it reminded me of, um, of Dahio Hogan's The Lore of Ireland, his encyclopedia of myth, legend and romance, which is a fantastic yeah. uh, book in itself. But that, that encyclopedia, the, it, it opens with the word aber, which is the Irish form of the verb speak, which, as Dahi notes, literally means outbring. And so it's the usual oh. kind of request for, for, an, for a performance is being sought, an oral performance. So aber avron, aber scale, aber dawn. So kind of say a song, say a story or say a poem. And there's a sense, as he notes, that in these expressions or in, 
in lore or in, in, in those expressions where lore or information is relayed. It's essentially a spoken practice. And you then made, make mention in the book of the, the poet Amrigan, who's one of my favourites, and, and he invoked the land of Ireland. You know, the very, the reason that, that, that there are mortals on this formerly kind of magical island at all was through this magical incantation that he, um, that he kind of expressed, which allowed us to, 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 um, to land here. So this was something that you, you mentioned as a youth, reciting Amrigan's words in the hope of kind of getting to grips with them and that they, you said that they reveal a language that not only describes things, but also summons them into being, which is a fantastic idea, I think. Yeah, um, what's lovely, it's, it's also almost so tentative and hesitant. Like you referred earlier to, you know, grabbing an object from a historical object, some from the Bronze Age and being able to hold it and feel it and measure it as archaeologists do. But if we're looking at words, everything is so uncertain. And so it leads to, you know, the field of early um, of early Irish uh, studies is, is sort of cu- so cutthroat and so sort of difficult compared to, let's say, early Irish archaeology, just because there can be there can be nothing concrete, you know, this is we're dealing with language and language only came with St. Patrick in the 5th century. So, so we're needing to to listen back to the echoes of what our people were thinking. We cannot just pick up a chalice and measure it and, and send it in for, for analysis. So all of these, and you know, what's lovely about you in the, in the, in the Folklore Commission is that, or the, in the Folklore Department, is that they are, it's the same. It is all of these tentative stories and sagas and, and sort of phrases that were recorded, but none of it is necessarily based on fact, almost because you know, fact seems and rational thinking and measurement seems to be a concern of maybe just the last few centuries. This is something bigger. This is something about myth. It's about human beings finding meaning in the world. And so we do that through creating stories. Um, And those stories always have a basis of truth. But then sometimes they're beyond fact. They're beyond truth. They're trying to get at larger truths. So as you say, Amergen is almost this a glimpse, this first glimpse into the ancient world. And again, it's hard to prove, but we have been telling ourselves for centuries and maybe thousands of years that this was the first great druid, the first great wordsmith who passed on his knowledge to down the line, who, who arrived here with the Milesians um, and, um, you know, managed to arrive on, on, in, uh, in Ireland. And how did he do that? Because a magical wave, probably brought by Monnamaclear, washed them onto the, onto, the, onto the shoreline of the southwest of Kerry Cork shore, shoreline. Um, and he said these words, and these words, yeah, as you said, uttered the landscape. And these words, what? Can we say they were in an early form of Irish? I mean, <laughs> you know, if we go logically, we need to realise, OK, we were not the first settlers. The hunter-gatherers and the Neolithic people did not have the same DNA as us. But but then is it, are you going to trace our history back through DNA or through culture? Like, did we take on the same culture, the same mindset, the same Weltanschauung that some of those first either Neolithic settlers or hunter-gatherer settlers had? What's great is we don't need to prove one way or the other. All we're trying to do is to have a connection find a rootedness in the world and if these things resonate with us if they make if they make help if they help us make sense of this mixed up chaotic world then isn't that the isn't that the purpose of mythology and stories all down the line all down the years it's just it's just to make sense in this chaotic world and they certainly do. All of these elements of the Irish language, like if we just take the Irish language and, and have it as a school subject and, and look at grammar um, and look at, you know, the different modern terms, it's hard really 
to, to deeply connect to it. But the minute we see this is the, the ghost voices, the, um, the, the sort of lost words of our people, the Tahran. The, uh, Tahran is a ghost of an unbaptized child or, or a weakling. Um, these are these frail voices resonating out from our past talk trying to talk to us trying to give us glimpses and actually not just ephemeral glimpses really useful glimpses into where the areas were that were marshy long ago and that flooded long ago or where the areas were that had rife um had massive amounts of particular types of of herbal remedies like tansy or or, or plantain or different types of seaweeds so it's not only sort of not only connecting us to the other world and the sort of deeper things but actually practical things as well Crop a bobby place a bobby field. Much using that's much using uh, names of fields there. Say Patsy's crop, John's crop, various things like that. Kyol, Cronon, Crahog, also a type of fish, a small rockfish. Caraville, a midge. Crubine, the um, hoof of a cow. Quillaheen, a low wave whipped by a, a breeze on the sea. A Quillaheen. Caraheen is used for a small field and a small bobby field usually and sometimes it used to mean a jail it says if this is they're saying some fellow was in jail that says he was inside in the Kalaheen for a spell. Kalaheen is a bit of a ash plant with a, a lump on the head of it. Kunsog, a wild bee's nest, Kummer, a hollow in the countryside, Calm down the old name local name for Kalaheen moss. Kinyawira, a uh, bit of a sort of roguish, a rogue in a way. Krunka, um, a hump that a person put on themselves would, um, because something was wrong with them, because they had cold or something. Kioran, a mist, a drizzle. Kuinga, a corner. Kohal, a bush or a bush of seaweed. You, you write about, I couldn't agree more with, with that, it's fantastic, but you write about, about Amargin as well, that you say, his words are a gift to ourselves from the ancient past, grounding us to this land while also hinting that we are connected to all things around us in nature. And on the one hand, like you say, you know, either place names in the Irish language or terms or words will reference uh, types of land and, and, and kind of, um, like you're mentioning, say, plants that grow in an area or again to reference uh, Eddie Lennon. I remember a, a, um, a T.G. Carr documentary where he was talking about the absence of knowledge around place names and their meaning when a housing estate in Galway was built in a place called Bunnahawan and then people were surprised years after the houses were constructed that that place flooded, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Which Bunnahawan, if anyone doesn't speak Irish, means means the bottom of the river, basically. So, you know, building houses on a floodplain without reference to uh, to the, the information that's that can be gleaned from tradition. But apart from, say, the reference to, to the landscape, and like you mentioned with, 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 um, with, with Amargan, there's also a reference to the other world that, that you know, you know, in the book that that the Irish language often references the other world that kind of supernatural realm which exists alongside us at all times and specifically you mentioned the idea of counter versus alter what what are those two terms what do they mean so you know counter every school child will learn means that this district or a region or a place or location 
Um, and alter was, it's a word that has dropped out of usage now, but it was almost the opposite of counter. So if counter was this place, this location, then alter is the other place, the other realm, the other world. And like it was known, it was acknowledged by our forefathers that there was only ever a thin veil between counter and alter. And that there were some people who could slip from one to the other, from counter into alter and vice versa. So pukin, pukin means a supernatural clothing that allows otherworldly beings appear invisible in this world. So it was just, I mean, pukin, as we know, also means a, a blindfold or a, a goat muzzle or a tin shield for putting over a thieving cow's eyes. <laughs> but there was, you know, each word. And, you know, you still say pukin today is for, for, for a blindfold when you're on a, a flight, you put on your pukin to go to sleep. But it was accepted that there was the, that the other world was just beside us, was part of us. And that there were even words talking about that liminal, the, the line, the veil line between the two. Like there were a lot of li- words for mysterious lights that appeared or illuminations. And of course, in a world of pitch darkness for you know much of the winter months where there was no electricity, then any appearance of a luminance, of a light, was a matter of wonder. It was a matter of surprise. I would have thought to people, okay, is this a limit of the reality? And is this line, this li- light showing a liminal, a, a limit of my reality and a tr- threshold point into the other world. They used to take care they wouldn't build a house on a, what they would call a fairy path. Oh, path. not at all. Oh, no, no, no. They didn't build it. They built it as far as possible away from a fairy fort. Well, how would they find out now whether they were on a pad or not? Well, there was always the, there was always the story going of the, seeing the lights moving at night along these paths. Mm-hmm. The fairy lights, as they call them. Mm-hmm. They said, uh, the, there's an old fellow down in, in uh, County Mona, he told us that since the after the trouble in this country, 1920 and 21 of those years, he never saw the fairy lights anymore. He used to see them coming from one fort away down near Ariel and they'd come up on across up by, by Lockmore, the Lockmore Bog, and up to there. They used to be visiting each other, and then he'd see them going back down again later on in the night. But he said after the trouble, he never, never saw them anymore. So, so Scrimplini means the supernatural lights that dance before one's eyes, or Artini Yalon, mysterious light emitted from putrid fish, Artina Hani, a luminous scene on the udders of cows in wet weather, mm. Artina Chris, flashes of fire sparked on the stones of a road by a horse's hooves, Artina Shunig, flashes of flame over peatland, or another meaning for Tina Yalon, which I had before, is flashes of summer lightning. So, Anything, oh, and did I give you a last point? Last point, dancing coloured lights that appear before your eyes at times when you drift a little bit too far towards other dimensions. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they recognise, and again, we, we sort of, we still understand that idea that sometimes the world doesn't feel quite real and we do slip into these these wider um, we wider perspectives. Perspectives, yeah. No, it's, it's, yeah. it's something that... You know, you, you reference in the book as well, you write, long ago we seemed to know instinctively that life wasn't as it seemed. Our reality was a world of happening, not of things. And that it kind of echoes with what you mentioned earlier. But nowadays, in, in a modern context, we've kind of moved towards the reign of quantity, say, where, where all things are kind of measured or quantifiable and so on. But that that often what you find, some of the concepts that are expressed in the Irish language and in older terms they go beyond that sort of um, duality, say, or that simplicity or that, that kind of, they're not as reasonable, say. You mentioned terms no. like critter as well and that, that there's a constant reference to the strangeness of, of, of being, I suppose, and this acceptance of the other world that, that can suddenly kind of, those flashes of the fantastic that can come into our lives all of a sudden. 
Exactly, exactly. And so all we need to do is just lock on, log on to any single document in on the, on the website of the, of, of the folklore department or on duchus.ie on, on of the school's collection and you will find accounts of things happening, day-to-day accounts of things happening, you know, from the 19th century or the early 20th century and people suddenly talking about the magical world appearing and seeping into this world. It was it was the most normal thing ever. It was just part of our daily life that we had the reality, the the strong um, the strong sort of daily reality that we could pinch, that we could touch, and that we feel. But the other thing, the the other world would often seep in. And as you said, that word "kriher," it's like such. It captures all of that. So "kriher" means it means a particle or a spark of flame or light or the tiniest portion of something. So it can be like a, a subatomic particle. It could be a "kriher." It can be a scientific word. But it also refers to the vulnerability and the insubstantiality of solid objects, like suddenly soil or ground. Which is um, which is you know absolutely dependable and and solid, but then in an earthquake it begins to quiver to cru- to tremble or to quiver. So Crayer will ex- will talk about that, or Crayer can refer to a swamp, and a swamp seems utterly solid, but then you put your foot into one piece of it, and suddenly it goes absolutely soft, and you know it swallows you up, or it begins to wobble. Or cr- or Crayer can also be the crumbling surface of ploughed land when dry after rain. So it acknowledges both the solidity of things at their tiniest element, but also how things that are solid can appear vulnerable. And again, that's what physics is showing us. You know, we sit down on a sofa and the sofa takes our weight, but actually we know that sofa is a collection of molecules and atoms that are constantly chemically interacting and electromagnetically reacting with each other. And it's only that our solidity and gravity melds with its solidity that all of these molecules manage to resonate at the same time and it holds us up but in reality everything is just a swamp everything is quivering and um collection of particles it's uh it's 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 fantastic as well even like you know that that sense of the vulnerability that you mentioned or these these kind of dual states or quantum states and the idea of presence and absence then as well like in your chapter on the loss of words you talk about absence beautifully you mentioned my one of my favorite words in the Irish language, irvrucht, and then you also mentioned the term of of dilaher, um, of a kind of um, an absence. You write here that dilaher related to the absence felt when something or somewhere had been depopulated or destroyed by other human beings. It is also the feeling our descendants may have, may have when they realize that we willingly chose not to pass this language on to them. But there's a sense, I suppose, of um, of of presence in some of the terms, but also so absence. And the, the term irvrucht in particular is one that I love. That that's the kind of the loneliness felt at dawn. Yeah, it's an irvrucht, gorgeous. Um, did I co- I came across another meaning for irvrucht as part of this project I'm doing to the coast that it can also be the loneliness that's felt at this on sea. Uh, on the ocean so it's just that sense of yeah you are in a location and you just feel you are the last person left alive and it's a feeling all of us have actually what we probably now have is the earbrucht of hotel rooms you know when you're alone in a hotel room and you're just thinking you've arrived you know to do a business thing and you just think you're totally disconnected from everyone and everywhere and we don't have words for those in 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 english there might be gorgeous words in, in german i don't know um but it's just it's lovely that we can reconnect with the humanity of our forefathers, the, how they had the same experiences of the human condition that we did through through the language. And I mean, the book could have just been um, bemoaning and keening the loss of all these words. But I feel it's a bit 
too early to do that. Like, as we know, the 20th century and the early 21st century has been just a time of such utter change that no one would have imagined. We, we, you know, we modernised, we globalised, and now it looks in the last, you know, few years that perhaps an end of is coming to that. Perhaps this mass expansion of capitalism as an experiment of um, mass consumerism might not be the answer and might not survive. So, we're reaching these conclusions at a time when actually all of this lore of the language is still alive. And it's not only in books, it's still in the mouths of certain people in Gwaltacht areas. So it is up to us, you know, this isn't dead. This isn't me like um, on uh, sort of um, digging up old wisdom. It's actually still there. And it is up to us to if we wanted to take it on again. Um, yeah. So although there's this year, as you say, the destruction of so much but yes, it can be rebuilt pretty quickly. No, I agreed. And I don't want even to give the impression that the book is kind of, like you said, lamenting the, all the, these kind of losses or absences. You also mentioned, uh, and, and regularly you mentioned the idea of community throughout the book and the idea even of, um, you know, you reference your own youth and the Kerry Gaeltacht as a child, uh, the idea of visiting as the preeminent activity there. You talk, and the different terms, again, for different types of visits, Bohantiacht, Skoriacht, Kortiacht, Arnon. So there's 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 the reference constantly to different types of um, of community activity that are a constant part of the language as well. Yeah, um, and uh, isn't it interesting? Well, I, I mean, I suppose I should say we we must even just listening to me. You can sense I am rosy eyed, you know, and we do, I I do know there are reports. Yeah, there are reports coming out of the demise of the Gweltacht. Every few years we get these imminent reports that, that you know, there's only 10 years left. And I'm, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't, you know, ditch any of those or dismiss them. And they, they, they instill that same despair in me as in everyone. Um, I'm just, I'm just trying to lay out an alternative view. But that, so like that element of all of those words for kolud or for gathering together with either music or for gossiping or for just visiting people um all of those words are still alive and yet are, are the practices still alive they could be again god love god they certainly haven't been this year with covid nobody's been going into houses but it's fascinating that this was a this was a language and this was a culture that was entirely built er er ska hela or warren on, on each other's shadows or we all survive under each other's shadows um, and I remember my grandmother who spent a lot of time on the Blasket Islands when she was between the year 1912 and maybe 1924 roughly um, and she said that absolutely it was the most deep community and on the Blaskets you know they depended on each other for everything so they would make their own needle if they wanted to sew they would um, and which which um, the the daily brothers did they'd make their own coffins you know they'd make their own boats they'd make their own musical instruments their own violins and yet if you and we you know so many of us are familiar with Fihibli uh, on the Foss and then Krihnachsen the the island man um, and Peg's books but you can see yes they were living on Ska or Ska Hela under each other's shadows but also there was a lot of, of animosity and frustration built on that so when a lot of those words for going around people's houses and visiting and creating this tight-knit community a lot of it is a lot of it is to do with gossiping you know there was a lot of backbiting and gossiping they sort of lived on each other, under each other's shadows because they had no option. They had no other option. They had to depend on each other. They were clinging onto each other like humans on a life raft. So I, I, I'm focusing on the romantic and the nice on in, in, in all these words. But I realize as well that um, there's an amazing freedom. There's, there are amazing benefits to our modern world where, where we can be isolated and we can just connect with people through the internet if we wished.
Certainly, I mean, yeah, I guess friendships come at a much higher premium in, 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 in kind of more remote areas than they do in a city in that sense. I suppose people don't, aren't forced to rely on each other in the same way. The, the question of community is another one that comes in in the book in, this, in, in reference to the other world and the other world community that are most often referenced in, in Irish tradition really are, are the fairies, the fairy host and slew a she. Uh, and you note in a, in a chapter on fairy words, you say that many Irish words are so imbued with elements of the other world that a speaker really ought to clarify their own relationship with the spirit beings before attempting to learn the language. And I suppose you mentioned terms like fuadach and irver, dinamaha na huishle, bonanagnoch, this idea that that there are kind of epithets used to address the fairies, that you shouldn't you shouldn't address them directly, that there's a taboo, basically. This This reference to the fairy host kind of permeates so much of the language. It's, it's interesting, yeah, because one, one wonders what to do with that. So if we no longer believe in fairies, and yet, but we also are turning our back on Christianity. So we do, you know, mankind from the very beginning has always had this wish to connect to something bigger, to another world. And so it was, you know, now, I suppose, or in the Irish language that was given to us in schools, it is like utterly infused with Christianity. But before that, before we, we believed so strongly in Christianity, or before even the 19th century, when Christianity became such a, a sort of a, an oppressive or a strong force in culture then that belief in the fairies was still so strong and again just pull out any sing any document of, of folklore and you will see that strength and so because the words are just so infused with this knowledge as you say for the, the word you hear on the nightly news um, for kidnapping actually means being kidnapped by the fairies being taken away by the fairies and then irver you know now a word for let's say the crumbs at the bottom of your toaster or the dregs in the bottle of wine it's just the dregs the, the remains the what is left behind um, is originally meant irver meant a changeling it meant the empty husk of the human body once the fairies had sucked out the goodness had taken out the human soul and just left only the, 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 the empty carcass behind or it with a with a with an evil spirit inside. Was there ever any word here of the the, the fairies taking people away? Well, it was a, it was a usual chatter around the fireside long well, and they'd sit down. What to do? There was one. I was I was about I was ten years of age when my brother brought me over to. It's uh, one side of Kilty Clogher. It was in Fermanagh. It's on the border. And uh, he took me to speak the eleven months. Now, this is one incident, any of supposed a child to be taken away with the fairies. So, there was an old house right be beside the mid for our work with. And like all youngsters, I was very inquisitive and to know what was inside. And I looked in on the window and I seen chairs and tables and delf and everything left there the same as if the water and the roof half hanging in. No one, no one had ventured into it. There was a little girl at 12 years and uh, she got sick, and they didn't know what was wrong with her. And uh, the doctors come to her, they couldn't find out what. She was there in the bed all this lamenting and moaning, and when they used to go out, when they used to leave her in the bed. When they used to come back in, they thought they had to run her from the kitchen. Yes. Right back into the bed and her moaning away. And uh, God, the, the priest come to her anyway. And the priest was in the room. But he went out and he wouldn't give them much knowledge. So this nature got very bad and the father went for the priest. And the priest said, kind of put his head out the window. It was two o'clock in the night. And he wasn't going to come out, he said. So the fellow gave him, he wasn't pleased with him. Well, he says, I'll go, he says, and I'll let you know if you are caring or nothing. 
So we'll come and he went up to the room and she was moaning there and the, he prayed to leave the sweat fella. And he came down and went up and all was in the bed was a rotten stick. So there were the name, a family, the name of Gallagher. This was told to me for truth from my brother's mother-in-law. Mm. They went to America. No one ever, they never sold a thing for me. And they, they never come back. Now the girl was not, never hurt her, never seen nothing more. Oh. And that was now, that was told to me by this old woman. She was, she was uh, Mrs. Rooney. She was uh, Gil Martin herself. Yes. And that happened in her day. Yes. So yeah. now... Yeah. So to fully understand words like that, and and even, you know, all of the, like, down in, in how they might say in Clare, they might ref- make reference to Don, to the, 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 the god of the other, of the, of the um, other world, who lived off, um, off Lynch. Um, we sort of do need to recognise that this world, this language was built on fairies. As you said, Shigriha. Shigriha is a tricky one. Shigriha means, it means a, a, a gust of wind, but it also means the fairies rushing by you. And it's a confusion because she can be a gust and she can be a fairy. So the, the word has two meanings. But it was taken in people's mindset to mean that it was the fairies rushing by. If you suddenly had a, a gust of wind going by you quickly, that it was the fairies, because the fairies were everywhere. And suddenly if they were rushing to somewhere, because every night when you were in Bahantiach, when you were going around telling stories, you were hearing stories about how the hordes of fairies would rush by from place to place. So then it was only natural during the day when you felt a sudden gust of wind, or when you saw a whirlpool, a whirlwind in the, in, the, in the field, pick up a haystack or pick up a barn door and blow it elsewhere. Who else could have done it? But those other worldly, um, other worldly gods. What about a fairy wind? Did you ever hear? Oh yes, I often heard of. No, but I often heard of a fairy wind, like that. There's like a fuddle blast and clean all in front of it. It happened down there one time we were at hay, and it, we never seen where the hay went. Mm. It came off this fuddle blast and it cleared. Like a, about a, ten yards wide, it cleaned all that. Yeah. And and I took no one from either side. I'll say that there's ten yards. No. It wasn't. Just then then nothing else, only that, only that, only this. Yeah. Ten yards wide. I see. And what would they say now, what were the fairies doing when they were causing this wind or in this never, wind? Furl never, never, a furl blast. You call, you'd call it a furl blast. Aye, furl yeah, blast. That's fair. And some would call it a fairy wind. Yes. Long ago, no, and I, there was a young fellow here in the house the other night and he was throwing out water, he was after washing up the floor. And I says to him, <laughs> Do for the old people long ago. They never throw out, they'd say, Hogo, Hogo, Ishkisala. So that was for the good of the wee people in case they'd be around the door to not throw the dirty water on them. Did you ever hear that? I did, yeah, yeah. That's good. Mm-hmm. They were your nearest neighbours. Your ne- you you water was going down on their <laughs> that's house. That's, that's right. right. That's right. Yeah. Well, what would happen if you were caught in a fairy wind yourself? Would you do anything? You could hear, get this, what, what do you call it, furl wind. If you were in that, oh, we got all I do. I know well I'd be knocked down very quickly because yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have the strength to. You what couldn't. What is a knife now, a pitchfork? Oh no. no! But there was a man next door over there, Carrigan. Yeah. He told me about his father t- taking a knife to this ghost that used to follow him, a ghost. Oh. And he oh. crossed the river and he told him if he'd follow him, he'd use the knife on him. 
Yeah. And they came a big barley said away down a hill. And it plushed right beside him, it plushed into the river and it put water up about twenty to thirty feet high. Yeah. But it wasn't the bar. This was the, the, the strange and, thing. Uh, and he suppose he died very young and he was supposed that he was brought away by the fairies. That oh, man next door he lives over there next door, John Carrigan. Yes. Hey God, he'd tell you hair-raising stories if you're talking to him. Yeah? I've heard the tape in the room. That's the thing. No, but there's fairy rings for the, there's fairy rings for the supposed they used to dance around long ago. Yes. But I've never mm. seen them dancing. And I want I just wanted to, I wanted to find use in these in this lore, in this knowledge that we have. And so what was revelatory me for me was realising that the word she, for fairy, Shioga, that, you know, she originally meant a fairy mound, and then it meant the area or ring for it. Then it meant the area around that fairy mound, and then it became Shioga, the, or the she, the fairy. So the banshee, as everyone knows, you know, is the, is the fairy woman, the powerful um, matri- female goddess. And um, that that word she is the same, has the same root as the word she in Shihan, which means peace. And that in Scots Gaelic, it's the exact same word. S-I-T-H means peace and S-I-T-H-E means fairy. Um, and as we know, in Old Irish, that was spelled S-I-D-H-E, Siddha, um, you could pronounce it, in um, Siddha. And Siddha has the same root as the Sanskrit word Siddha, which is a wise person or a human being who has attained a degree of enlightenment in either Buddhism and Hinduism and Jainism. And that, that opened up something for me. Like when I realised that Siddha, S-I-D-H-E, is the same root as the word Siddha, you know, the, the Indian wise person, I realised, okay, so does that mean is that how the fairies were looked at long ago, that they were these wise beings who lived in nature, these otherworldly enlightened beings who were almost guardians of us, who were um, trying to guide us on our way. And then if we think about what we know about the fairies, all of those stories, fairy stories in your archive, they're saying, talking about, how the fairies are constantly coaxing us to play more, to feast, to enjoy life, to, to revel. And they're constantly, when we say that we have, that we worry, we, need, we tell them we need to get back to our real world, that we have human concerns, that we have no money, and we need to get money from the pot of gold that the leprechaun has, they laugh at us, they ridicule us. They just think, this is, this is such tawdry human concerns and they try to get us to see the world through a bigger perspective just as the great uh, Hindu gurus were doing or just as Jesus was doing as well saying get over it there's bigger truths relax and open up and see the world around you so these fairies they're not something to laugh at to laugh at when Americans come with their fairy hats or their leprechaun hats this is actually these are actually profound wise beings I think in the book I say they're a cross almost between the Buddha are and um, and Yoda in Star Wars. There, I remember, and we'll cut to this in, in a wee bit as well in more detail. But in reading a Sanskrit dictionary, I'm being amazed to find uh, looking up the word for fairy and finding my pronunciation might be incorrect here, but it was basically Shiogini or Sidiogini, S I D H Y O G I N I for a fairy or a wizard, um, and that's something that that scholars have have attested to the connections between the early Hindu tradition or or and and. Um, and Ireland as well, but we'll look at that in, in more detail. But that's just mind blowing, kind of fascinating when, when you when you um, when you look into it. You mentioned as well, and you had a fantastic. There was an article on the journal, an excerpt from the book on the the a kind of a form of the fairy that has, as you write, has um, 
has perhaps caused the most controversies, and that is the leprechaun. And you note it's a kind of it's a sensitive issue for Irish people, as you write here, because of the way it was handled in the 19th century English and American journals, and most particularly the Disney film Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Its depiction of leprechauns came to be used to mock Irish people and was later commodified to help sell legions of tacky souvenirs. But again, as you note, going back to the school's collection in, in, the, in, our, in our folklore archive in particular, um, that the leprechaun is a kind of, an, 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 I suppose, an imaginative response to life that features all over Ireland. And there's an enormous listing of names, fantastic kind of variant forms, of the different names that you give uh, from leprechaun, luhrechaun, lurgadon, luhrechaun, 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 Linrachan, Liridine, you have this huge kind of, I suppose, accounts of different varieties um, from, from, from all over the country. Um, but I suppose, you know, and you have, we have European counterparts to these, these figures as well, a kobold in Germany or the Tomte in, in Sweden and so on. Um, but like you say, it points to, it's not something that we should, that should be embarrassed about or, or, or laughed at or mocked or whatever, that these, these are part of an, an imaginative response to, to, to life that was expressed in townlands and countries or townlands and counties the country over. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, maybe, but do you, do, does your organization, does your institution that you work for, that this podcast is, a, is an outreach of, have a, have, have a role to play, have a guilty role to play in inviting William, I mean, um, Walt Disney in. So let me get the, how do we say it? So there was first the Folklore Commission and then it became the Folklore, then it became a department in UCD and now it's, what, what are the, do you remember? It was the, the, so the Irish Folklore Commission from 35 to 70 and then the Department of Irish Folklore um, is the kind of the teaching aspect of it. So the archive today is called the National Folklore Collection. National Folklore Collection. And so yeah, Walt Disney kind of landed here and um, was brought around with the director of the Folklore Commission, Delargy. Um, and others to basically introduce them to, to the real tradition, as it were, so that they would have been collecting. Um, and then I suppose Disney's response to that was to make Darby O'Gill and the Little People. So is there some sort of complicit aspect? Um, maybe, but I think ultimately it was it was Disney's kind of Hollywoodizing of, of the tradition. Um, I mean, a lot of what you'll find recorded or all of what you'll find recorded in, in the archive um, is the are the responses and the narratives and kind of expressions of the people who, who just related these narratives and anecdotes and legends regarding the leprechaun. So. And I think my sense is that when Walt Disney came, he didn't come to lambaste it or to laugh it. He was actually fascinated by it and treated it with seriousness. But then, you know, in, in movies, one makes one simplifies things a little bit. And then Americans, when they remember the movie, have 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 simplified it further. But as you say, so so now we just have these leprechauns or these little men who are dressed up almost like Oompa Loompas. But if we can look beyond that and see, as you say, this is a pan-European, in fact, a pan-global thing that people, like when I was, I spent time with, with pygmies in Congo, in Zaire in the in the 80s, and there, when they go into the jungle, they know that there are beings there. There are beings in nature who are watching out for them and watching out at them. And we think in our modern world that that is all make-believe, that they don't exist. And yet... I'm not so sure. Do you know, when, when Charles, when Prince, when Prince Charles started talking to trees, he was almost acknowledging that there were beings that some people could see and some people couldn't see. And there's a lot of there's research being done now about, you know, there are ways of of um, without saying to sounding too woo. There are energies coming out of trees and one can we, one can pick up those frequencies with chemical um, analysis and by passing certain frequencies back at those the trees and nature, it, they respond. So, 
who is to say that some people see these resonances or these energies in the figure of lights or shapes and make them out to be human beings? So it's not necessary that it's entirely make-believe. There is wisdom in saying that there are calling them human little people or beings in in nature and that we can engage with them when we step outside the 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 human sphere and the, the human sphere is like it's the clearing in the forest it's where you know it's your housing estate or you know even just the area around your woodland where you've you've kept around where you've tracked down and you have no snakes and you have no insects in that area but just beyond there's a hint of wildness and we're not sure what exists in that wildness, but we've known from the very beginning that there are things that we don't know about. And just like we're now finding in the deep oceans, there are elements of the deep oceans that we don't know about. And what, the way we explained that long ago was with the idea of leprechaun. And as you say, each different region had its own terms. And that is a wealth that we can that we can use. And as I refer to, there was even these, there was knowledge because certain things that we didn't understand were were um, attributed to the leprechaun. So, for example, these prati lurachon, these little potatoes, they're um, this uh, sort of a a truffle-like uh, growth or a tuber-like growth of some wild uh, plants and herbs that were really useful because they provided an extra form of, of um, food to forage. But then it was it was said that they were the, 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 the leprechaun's potatoes. So not only was it a nice story about things, but actually they would link you, they would um, connect you to useful elements in nature. You write that as well in the chapter on fairy psychology. You say being aware of such things can't help but colour your outlook on the world. Um, and you say it's one of the reasons supernatural entities, which most traditional cultures identify with the land, didn't die out in Ireland. They were nur- they were nurtured and nourished by the language and also by the unique relationship that Irish people have with the land itself. And then you move, you move on to, to what I thought was a fantastic section on, on land and some of the words around land. So And you look at the idea of how does the, the Irish language allow us to reassess our connection to the land. You use the term uh, culpa, uh, which is a term used to d- describe land, not not spatially or through measurement, but in accordance with its grazing potential. And another fantastic term of, of girth. And you, you go into all the, the elaborate kind of details of what girth means. What does the word girth mean? So, I mean, in its basic sense, girth means a field. But actually, it's, you know, if you use that to describe a modern super... Um, a sort of a, an, a chemically dependent industrial created square massive field without hedgerows it's hard to define that as girt girt was a particular thing it was a thing that was capable of being ploughed uh, by two oxen between dawn and dusk and that it required that meant that it required a a communal aspect because the only way you were farming or ploughing back then was with the idea of core you bring bring people together and um you you sort of neighbors would agree to share the plough team and the labour and the seed to get this work done between dawn and dusk and to do it meant everyone was entitled to one day of the plough team and the labour the united labour of your neighbours to get this work done so a field had to be that size the size that was capable of being ploughed between dawn and dusk and then to get the plough team in and out in one in easily and around the field it tended to have rounded edges so if we can see we we innately know from having grown up in this land what a girth is it's a small enough rounded field that was nearby other fields so that because the next day that plough team would go and would move on to the field beside it and would do that one in as part of this community work there was a fantastic just piece that you wrote here that brings a lot of this out i think and you, you kind of alluded to some of it there you're right 
uh, despite its elasticity, that the, the elasticity of the term, it would be hard to stretch its meaning to include the modern notion of a machine-moulded superpasture whose natural sustenance has been replaced with chemical fertilisers, whose insect life has been suffocated by slurry, and whose diversity of herbs and flora has been replaced with genetically manipulated crops created in the laboratory. There's a fantastic, there's a kind of sense of, you know, nature being humiliated in the absence of mystery or being reduced to this level of an empty and meaningless materialism, and there, or there's no... No reference to transcendence in it or the idea that if we change the material conditions of our environment then then we can somehow escape our own our own dilemma um and further but there's this idea maybe that you referenced in the modern world that land or people are without an, any essence or without any meaning or without a history or a destiny you're kind of a sort of a tabula rasa where the world is kind of um, what would you say presented to us like an artificiality or, or a text with no meaning but in tradition as you note you know, there's a language of, of being, there's a language of gestures, a language of, of rituals and symbols that are com- symbols that can be communally interpreted, that orient us and ground us and root us. And in that sense, again, you look at, the, you mentioned the idea of community, of core, or, or mehel, or erskoa chayla amaran nadina, and that was the, the traditional approach to the land involved community. Exactly. And so, just like, as we said, when we've turned our back on those, the leprechaun or the spirit beings that inhabited the land, and we laugh at those now, and when we've turned our back on these terms that describe land in sustainable, ecologically um, sort of sensitive ways, where we talked about the land and how much it could produce and yet how much it needed to be left alone and how we could work together to, to create nourishment and to look after the land. Once we, once we cut ourselves off from those, then we know what we do. Then we begin to interact with the world in an exploitative way. And in fact, that's exactly what's happened. And as we've seen, that is exactly the result of that is when the UN tells us that whatever, we have only 50 or 60 harvests left. If we still maintain the belief that there were beings in nature that we needed to give deference to and who were looking after us and looking after the soil, and if we kept those languages alive, those terms alive that described as you said, that measured land in terms of how much animals it could take with before the land was degraded, then we wouldn't find ourselves in this point where, you know, so much of the land is being washed away, where so much of the soil is being both not only eroded, but also exhausted, where we're having to add these nitrogen chemicals to it, which is getting into our own water system and then getting onto our own bodies. It's funny, like in one way, this is just a linguistic exploration of nice things, of folklore, of culture, of heritage aspects. And yet it is absolutely vital for what's happening in the current world, in the modern world. We've reached this point where it looks like we are poisoning ourselves and poisoning the air and poisoning the soil and poisoning the seas. Like that's not that's not just speculation. That's what every scientist is saying. And it happens that. This language, and to be fair, all ancient languages, there's nothing particularly special about Irish, um, tell us a way of living in the world where we can thrive, where we can be absolutely sustainable, where we can care for all of those complex elements. Um, So both things are happening. The urgent issue, both things are intermingled with this issue. The urgent environmental issues that we're facing and also the heritage and cultural aspects of Um, the lore that we've brought with us for thousands of years.
And that's my story. And in, in, in the context of that lore, I suppose you're right on, on deciphering place about the Din Shanachas and place name lore. And you mentioned that the, the Shanachas more, and you're right here how, just as regards, say, not just approaches and attitudes to the land, but as far as place names are concerned and, and local place names and the collecting of local place names. And you note a couple of projects in Kilkenny and Meath that at the moment are collecting local field names. But you're right here, um, in a world before writing or any other recording system, memory was the bulwark for the maintaining a sense of identity, of tracing lineages of spiritual or military leadership, of tracking patterns of climate change and vegeta- vegetation growth, of collating and conserving cult- cures and remedies. To know the world meant to memorize it. And then you quote, and the Shanachas Moore emphasizes this point. This is fantastic. It says, what is the preserving shrine? Uh, not hard, it is nature and what is preserved in it. So there's a kind of symbiosis of, of memory and land that's expressed in, in a lot of these place names and attitudes that we hold towards the land around us. Isn't it just blows away some of those things exactly? Like I, I am no expert on anything. So each idea that I'd come across, mainly just through the internet and through books, just blew me away. As you said, so because we weren't able to write things down, um, and you know, I give some examples in the book of what potentially seemed to be information from ten thousand years ago that is preserved in our proverbs or our language or our mythology now. Now it could be coincidence, but at the same time, it's interesting that facts that were happened 10,000 years ago is something that we find like in Aboriginal culture where they somehow seem to know the geological or the early beginnings of their landscape and there are examples of that in Irish. Now we didn't have writing so how was it done? It was passed down obviously from mouth to mouth but nowadays now you know we're now being taught about how we cannot trust our memories that when we repeat something in the modern world we repeat it differently every single time. Somehow they were able to preserve things by not just having them from mouth to mouth but having them at the core of songs and stories that were then um, our place names as you said and the story that went with the place name that in some way the story seems farcical it's it's just a king and a queen fighting at each other and two chariots you know uh, race happening and and blood being 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 um, dropped into the lake but then people who can decipher those stories or if we go back to the ways that our people were able to decipher those stories we see there's a deeper truth there we see that the blood or the flood into the water is to do with some ancient flood um so there can be on that geological on this massive eons of time scale information in in these phrases but also there can be really practical information in the place names um contained within it like um like fos lawert fos lawert um, in um, in in Leitrim, um, which is it makes no sense in English at all. But then if we see Foss um, Foss and Livgert, um, so it seems to be the Fossach or the 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 deserted or the place that has gone wild of the live of the herbs gert of the garden. So it seems to have been a herb garden that was identical to go wild. And if it was a herbal a medicinal herbal garden, it was obviously probably you know cared for by some medicinal woman some woman who had this knowledge she died or she was maybe killed by by the authorities and so her wild garden of apothecary um was it was like a wild all of that is preserved these echoes of things that happened long ago in now you know an, a name that we just ignore we wouldn't take any notice of when you talk about you know the 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 oral tradition and the oral stream this links us into something which is quite it's it's dizzying really when you look at it and, and utterly fascinating the connections between Ireland and India 
And mm. I was mentioning to you, I suppose, before the podcast here on, on um, my own personal interest, I suppose, in this topic and some of the survivals from what we call the Indo-European tradition and how they manifest in, in, in the Irish and the Gaelic tradition. Um, but th- it, there's a fantastic book called Mi- by Miles Dillon called Celts and Aryans. It was published by the Indian Institute for Advanced Studies after Miles Dillon's death. And in that, he Miles Dillon basically postulates something or echoes something that, that you write here in the book. That basically, as, as listeners might be familiar, the, the, the tra- you can trace the origins of many aspects of traditional kind of heritage mythology and law and, and folklore and so on in Ireland to um, the links in, in India and the Vedic tradition and so on. And you write here in a section on India that India and Ireland might have remained, the links between these two might have remained stronger and longer um, because the two areas are on the margins, Ireland to the west and India to the east. And that's something that Miles Dillon wrote. He, he referred to Ireland as a lateral anachronism. He said that, that strangely, the tradition was strongest at its furthest point away from the source, kind of. But what, what they also mentioned as part of that is that one of the things that you see in our ep- epic literature, you mentioned the Thon, Thon Bokuni, the Catalroid Okuli, there are these prose sections, and then it'll go into these um, poetic kind of, uh, uh, verse pieces and one of the theories is that the the prose section of the story was something that could be kind of versions could be told by different storytellers but that the 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 recitation or the poetic part was always fixed and that was the bit that would change and that's something that you find in the indian epics and it's also something that you see in the, in the early irish tradition but there are loads of other examples like you note um the word for a noble in ireland is ara and it's arya in 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 sanskrit raja is the is the king and ri is the king in, in ireland he, the brehad is the judge and the brahmin and and so on so there are these fantastic parallels yeah and that the very strongest one like idus you know irish is so rever- connected now to the education system and rhine the idachas the department the educational department and every you know every school child will know that word idachas or ilumt or idus the you know to do with education and that's the again has the same root as vedas the vedas the indian lore the ancient indian uh, knowledge that was passed down and so, and then if we, you know, go into the word druid, and again, the, the academics will fight about ever daring to use the word druid because we don't have a specific description now, and it's, a, you know, it was used among different, diff- different people at different times. But again, linguists are saying that the root is druvid, dru, um, a total connection, or oak tree. It's as many different um, descriptions of what dru is, but it seems to be the oak or the central stick around which the world was built, and then vid is connected to veda, Again, the the Vedas, the education, the wisdom, the seeing clearly. So with these, like not only right back with the Druids, with the, now the Department of Education, it's the same thing. It's about, it's that same Sanskrit root, that same word that linking us back to India. And of course, so much facts and so much clarity have been lost over the thousand years that our cultures have separated from each other. But there's enough there. You build up all of those connections. You think, wait, there, 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 there are links there. We are, we did once share the same culture. But as you said, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, even you mentioned um, um, Boyne, Bovinda, Bo Yun. You know this, this idea of the, the connection there as well. And I remember looking at um, some of the hymns from the Vedas, and there's there's a poem to the um, in honor of the goddess, the dawn, Ushas, from where in Europe we get Aos and Aurora, this kind of goddess. Uh, and the term that's used as an epithet, a kind of a, a, a term to refer to this goddess of the dawn as her highness, is Brahati, and that's the root that then becomes Brigantia around Europe and and breed meaning lofty or exalted one, who's St. Bridget. 
um, their mixture of that kind of saint and goddess today. But there are loads of different versions. Like there's even, do you know the song Tipping It Up to Nancy? Uh, John Riley yeah. sings it and Christy yeah. Moore got it from there. That, the, the, the fir- the, that first version that, I can, that we've seen of that song is found in the Panchatantra and it's called The Butter Blinded Brahmin. That's a collection of Indian folk tales that are thousands of years old. It's the exact same story. Wow. Um, or there are others, there's the Merseburg charms. I don't know if you've heard of those two charms written oh. in Old High German in a, in a religious text in the, from the ninth century. And one of them relates the curing of Odin's horse when it's dislocated its foot. But the charm appears in the Atharva Veda. Um, the, the, the basic kind of, the crux of it is blood to blood, bone to bone, sinew to sinew. So you see this in the old High German manuscript relating to Odin. Originally, the, the earliest literary references is in the Veda. Um, but it's also found in the second battle of Moitura when Mir, Dienkech's son, fixes Nuda's arm and he chants bone to bone, blood to blood, sinew to sinew over it. And then in the school's collection, there are loads of versions of it where you'll get a story like Christ is traveling over a mountain on a horse and it sprains his foot and he recites blood to blood, bone to bone, sinew to sinew over it. So you have this like hidden behind a veneer of Christian tradition, these kind of Indo-European incantations that have spread through these different uh, I suppose cultures, contexts, languages, religious traditions, and the ideas survived. You know that they, they're still being recited unbeknownst. So these echoes are are all around us from from again from kind of songs or charms or early Irish law and so on. It's it's a f- just a fascinating um, area of 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 to explore, I suppose, and to bear in mind those those ancient connections. Yeah, isn't it? And what's the the biggest lesson one takes from it all is that we are all connected. And what's gorgeous is just at this pivot point, we still have all of the clues and all of that knowledge of our ancient past, which does make me hopeful. You know, if if we were going to continue as we did in the last 20, 20th century of going on, of absolutely going, you know, to t- racing forward, forward on this globalization, on this technology, on this separating ourselves from nature and from our own bodies then all of this would have been lost because you know a computer language or a, a modern hyper digital form of english will always be more efficient than any of these languages but all of the wisdom that they lose that they lose that, that is lost in a modern digital um computer language is the valuable stuff that is going to get us through the future is going to bring us knit us all back together again at least that's my hope i wanted just to reference I suppose in light of what you've said there, this idea of illumination and you have a lovely chapter on the illumination of language. Um, and I suppose as we think about these different tapestries and threads that, that kind of, you know, bind us t- to our ancestors and so on over time. You mentioned that that light has always been regarded as a source of wind, wisdom in, in the Irish language. Um, and so you describe it in that sense. You mentioned almost grain, less bon, as you mentioned earlier, um, and how the Irish seem to see light everywhere you write. Um, that you know you mentioned the different types of phosphorescence and so on or bracket and lay pre-dawn light and um, but you also talk even of of color in in the book and the idea of different types of illumination like isn't there a description of of the winds the black wind and gray dove from the arctic from the mm-hmm. north um, and this question of those of illumination of of, of light uh, and of color that's related to to the wind what are the ideas that are expressed in in that regard uh, they could they could be psychedelic. There's one particular poem, yeah, uh, the Ron, the great, the 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 different color that uh, that uh, that um is 
is infused in the wind from every direction and some of it is seems um some of it seems imagine imaginary but some like this beautiful purple light which would have been the dawn light the the darkest light with you know the black light the black wind sorry would have been those winds coming from the north and the east those hyper cold winds coming down from from siberia or from the north pole um, but what they do show is that we seem like we, you know, we look at our past in black and white because that's the photographs we have or we have etchings or, you know, we have we have just um, sort of stone carvings. And so it's not it's sort of grim. But what comes through the language is this was a this was a culture and it was a world which was rife with um with with all sorts of you know um with sort of a technicolor imagination and clearly if you did believe that anything could come alive that there was magic entities in everything it allows for this type of almost psychedelic uh, view of the world so you know the Irish language because it was taught by priests in the 1920th century because the education Catholic Catholicism had such a strong link in um, connection to education in the 20th century we seem to have you know we, the, the Irish now that we learn is a sort of washed out diluted um, blank type of one and what, what we want to go back if we do again if we go back to the National Folklore Collection open any page and you will just see the the absolute multi-tangential technicolor alter sort of multi-plane um, richness of this the world and the the world we had and the language that we used to describe it back then yeah it's incredible you yeah. describe it as, as a chromatic illumination and mention even the idea of gloss and the, the wind being given this this kind of color gloss which means oh gloss means so many things yeah gloss means fresh gloss means gray gloss means clear gloss means vibrant gloss gloss is just the life force animating something and it does it as best in a field of green but you know you can take that word and go many different directions with it you mentioned um, then as well the glass gavden the mythic cow this kind of mythic cow of bounty who, who in in all the narratives regarding her she's mistreated by people she basically she she sustains people with endless kind of flow of milk um, and then until somebody kind of offends her essentially by holding a sieve beneath her udders and asking her to fill it uh, at which yeah. you know you're kind of bleeding na nature and the land dry but the idea of, of of i suppose the 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 cow is also referenced in in the heavens in irish tradition in the milky way what's the name the term given for the the Balach na Bofinne. Is Balach na Bofinne, yeah. And um, yeah, so I suppose I talk about that with regard to the Boyne, which, as you said, was the, the, the Boinda, the goddess, the, the female cow goddess who nourished her people with her um, with her milk. And then she was reflected up in the night sky in this Balach na Bofinne, the, the way of the white cow or the pale cow. Again, Finna can also be Finn, Finn McCool. It's pale, it's white, but it can also be wisdom or seeing clearly or seeing knowledge. So it's a word, you know, both white and clarity and then seeing knowledge were connected to each other so all of this this was the way of the cow who had knowledge the, the divine cow and I go where else are you finding divine cows in, in Hindu religion in, and, and in fact um, Sean McAtee is doing some gorgeous work in looking at the different words of constellations and planets and realising there's a load of cow terms in all of the words connected to um, the stars and the planets um, I think it's just it's a fantastic place I suppose to finish up I mean we've looked at the specificity of kind of really local minute townlands and field names and then I suppose to finish up with ideas around the heavens and the cosmos and so on for any listeners who, who are curious about it it's a fantastic book um, and where can people kind of where can people support you directly on your website to buy it or what would you advise 
Yeah, no, you for any bookshop, the one thing is just let's try not to buy it on Amazon. But there were some times, as I said, it came out in September and it's been sold out a few times, but there's going to be books, there'll be, there'll be, there'll be books in all small bookshops and even bigger bookshops at the moment. You can get it on my website as well if you want a signed copy. But um, no, you'll find it, you'll find it everywhere. And it's just been a revelation to me. We, the Amazon and Book Depository, which is owned by Amazon, have, have had no copies of this book so far and I'm hoping to keep it that way. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your uh, illuminating knowledge and with us and um, it's a fantastic text um, and I'll leave links um, in the SoundCloud page and so on for anyone anyone to, to purchase a copy of it but uh,